0: I was born in a small town called Masjid Suleiman in southern Iran. I was born in Syria. I
1: was born in Hamburg, Germany. I was
0: born in Kung. I was born in Tanzania in a
2: refugee camp. I was born in Singapore, Guatemala.
1: I'm from Ireland. I was born in Thailand, refugee. I was born in
2: Mumbai. I was born in Vientiane, Laos. I was
1: born
0: in England. I was born in
2: Costa Rica. Welcome to Many Roads to Here. Bringing the voices of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers to a national conversation about migration and identity. I'm your host, Caitlin Dwyer. When you think of courageous living, music probably isn't the first thing that comes to mind. But Diana Ihaz, professional musician and refugee of war, learned how to play her viola as an act of bravery. As bombs rained down over Bosnia and Herzegovina in the early 1990s, Diana and several other musicians risked their lives to host hundreds of concerts. They often played in the ruins of bombed buildings, and always to a packed audience, starving for normalcy. Diana learned the value of using her talents to offer others hope, resilience, and communal healing, even in the midst of war. Magellan has her story.
1: So my mom was a factory worker in a factory for making furniture. And uh, on the weekends, she would be cleaning houses of various people. And one family that she was cleaning house for was a family of musicians. He was a trombone player in Sarajevo Opera Orchestra. And uh, so from time to time, he would offer her complimentary tickets to go on uh, to watch the opera. She would be so mesmerized with uh, how beautiful the music is she was very very dedicated to my music studies there is something called elementary music school that goes parallel to the regular elementary school and it would take like uh, four days a week you would go to music school to have your instrument lessons and orchestra rehearsals and music theory and solfege and so on my mom would come to every single violin lesson that i had in these six years And she would take notes and then make sure that I'm practicing on the weekends and every day as well.
0: Yugoslavia's socialist structure provided free music and art classes to young students, which allowed Diana to continue her musical education. She attended conservatory in Bosnia's capital city, Sarajevo, where she focused on the viola as her preferred instrument. A professor there encouraged her to apply for his position in the Sarajevo String Quartet after he retired. She was selected and became the quartet's first female musician in its 70-year-long history. Diana met her first husband when she was 17 years old. They immediately bonded over their shared love for philosophy and psychology. But they came from different religious backgrounds, and Diana's family did not approve of their relationship. At that time in Bosnia, religion and ethnicity generally went hand in hand. There were three main populations, Catholic Croats, Muslim Bosniaks, and
1: Orthodox Serbs. I was born in Roman Catholic religion, and my husband's religious background is uh, Muslim. But in Bosnia, religions are enriched by each other, meaning uh, we all live in neighborhoods where people from other religions are our first neighbors, and we grew up knowing their religious customs. All the generations that will be my mom's generation. Although we lived in this communist country, you know, we are all together. They still had their value systems that this is the best way to go. My religion is the best one and we don't mix with other people.
0: As the Cold War drew to a close in 1991, the political landscape of Yugoslavia was drastically changing. The modern countries of Croatia and Slovenia had voted to secede. Bosnia had voted to leave as well, but citizens were not entirely in agreement. Of the nation's three main demographics, the Muslim Bosniak and the Catholic Croat majority voted to leave while the Orthodox Serbs voted to stay. Tensions continued to rise until war erupted in April 1992. Diana was performing in Sarajevo the night before the Bosnian War began. We played
1: the Swan Lake by Tchaikovsky. It was kind of a special event. And uh, my ex-husband and myself lived on outskirts of Sarajevo in a town called Pale which was probably like 20 minutes with the public transportation. And the last bus was leaving at 11.25 p.m. So uh, the opera performances would usually be done like maybe five minutes before 11, and I would always be in a hurry to pack and go. And uh, I came to that bus station and we boarded the bus, and just maybe after five minutes of driving, the bus stopped three or four armed people walked in and asked us for our identification documents so we are talking about almost middle of the night so uh, we gave identification documents they gave the identification documents back to us they left the bus and bus continued uh, driving but that was very unusual and also a little scary
0: the next morning Their family called to tell them that Sarajevo was under siege. Serbian soldiers had surrounded the city overnight, and people lined the streets to protest.
1: It was virtually like a movie, out of the blue. And uh, then we are seeing, very next day, we start seeing in that small city also soldiers marching. And it's like, where were they two days ago? (laughs) So it was virtually very surreal, the entire first month of the war, like being in between disbelief and hope that this will stop. This cannot happen in the middle of Europe at the end of the 20th century. No way that this is going to happen. And uh, the part of Stan where we lived was mainly inhabited by uh, people of Serbian nationality. So in the building where we lived, we were the only people who were not Serbs. And our first neighbor, who was a man of our age, uh, told us on a second day that he has been recruited in the Serbian army, and he told us, you do, you should not worry about anything. Nothing can happen to you while I'm alive. And the first warning that uh, that we are not safe happened probably... Seven days into that. Remember, we cannot go to Sarajevo because Sarajevo is blocked. I went to the grocery store, and uh, as I walk into the store, there are three women in the store, and they stop talking. And for the entire duration of me being in that store, they are not talking. They are just looking at me, and I'm thinking, okay, It must be that they talked about us. Otherwise, they would ask, hey, how are you doing, something, you know. No, they're just not talking and staring. And then maybe two, three days after that, our neighbor, his name was Vinko, came and said, I cannot guarantee anymore your safety. And then uh, I asked him, what can we do? And he suggested that I go with him to the Army base and that I ask that they transport us to Sarajevo. And that's what I did. We walked and walked and we came, the gates opened and the gates closed. And I remember when gates closed, I was like, wow, am I going to get out of this alive? So he took us to this commander, his name was Mirko. It was also a younger man. And I told him that, you know, we are in, on parle. He understands that we are not Serbs. We are not feeling safe. We would like to go to Sarajevo. And he's telling us, I suggest you don't go to Sarajevo. Go somewhere else. And I said, why? And he said, Sarajevo is going to become a hell. But we did not know what, it, what he meant by that. And even if we knew, we would still go to Sarajevo. And I said, I understand, but our family is in Sarajevo, and we really want to go to Sarajevo. And he said, there's going to be a truck leaving for Sarajevo in 15 minutes. You will have 15 minutes to get packed and to leave your home and get on that truck.
0: So they hurried to the apartment and quickly began stuffing belongings into two backpacks. A soldier pounded on the door soon after, telling them to hurry up. They ran downstairs and joined a small group also heading to Sarajevo to be with their families, even though the city was moments away from being attacked. At that point, facing the danger together with loved ones in their homeland felt more important than seeking safety alone in an unfamiliar country.
1: we are in the back of the truck, and these soldiers are in front. So our understanding is that they are going to drive us to Sarajevo. On our way, they stopped probably three, four times, and more people boarded the truck. And probably after hour and a half, we are in the middle of this tall mountain called Jahorina, which is very famous uh, mountain for skiing. That's where Olympic Games happened in 1984. The truck stopped, and these soldiers came and opened the doors on the back of the truck and said, you need to leave the truck. So we are all confused. You know, we go down, I have my viola, I have my backpack, and (laughs) I'm carrying these jars. And it's April, April 17, 1992. Although it's April, the mountains are covered in snow. And uh, they closed the door and said, just walk down. And we were like, what do you mean walk down? And they said, just walk down. Eventually, you will get to Sarajevo. So we all start walking down, and uh, time start going down. You know, it's getting darker and darker. And probably, I don't know how many kilometers before... We came to um, another huge army base uh, that another truck stopped and boarded us. And uh, that's how we entered the Sarajevo. Diana called
0: her piano professor the next morning to share what had happened to them. But her professor cut her off, saying she must be exaggerating. There were still peaceful protests happening. They had no idea how serious the situation truly was. But soon after, the first civilian victim was claimed. She was a 24-year-old medical student, and she was shot as she
1: attempted to walk out of the city. And then the first big massacre of civilian people happened. This is probably third week of May 1992, when people were standing in a long line for the bread and Serbs throw the grenade. Uh, that is a weapon that is designed to destroy the airplanes. But in Bosnian war, Serbs were very often using grenades just to throw on people because one grenade can kill dozens of people and can injure hundreds because when grenade explodes, these little pieces can go into people's bodies. So that was kind of economic way for them to do major m- damage with one grenade. So at the end of May, they did that on the line of people who waited for bread. And that is when we finally lost the illusions that war will stop. And that's when we all realized war is going to go on, we are on our own. And in that situation, there are only two options. We can surrender and spend who knows how many next years in basements waiting, for fate to happen to us, or we can just organize our lives and proceed with uh, lives as normal as possible, with knowing that every day can be the last day. And in some sense, that war brought people in Sarajevo to that very <laughs> philosophical notion that every day can be the last day of life, even in most peaceful circumstances. What that does to life, one starts being much more mindful about the way we live life, because every day can be the last day. So members of the quartet, we were like, okay, why don't we start rehearsing? We we don't have space for rehearsing, we will just rehearse in an apartment of our cello player. So we virtually first started out of our own need to make the music. And then end of June, we were invited to give our first performance. And we decided that it's going to happen in a atrium of Jewish temple in Sarajevo in front of Menorah that was destroyed just a couple of days before that. And the concerts are happening during the day because in the evening there is no electricity, so no evening concerts, and we are going to give the concert in the middle of the day, like 1 p.m., in front of that menorah. It's a beautiful June day. We are now walking as a group of four towards that place. And yet, once again, we hear the sirens, a warning people that there is going to be bombing. And four of us stopped. Okay, what shall we do now? And our second violin player said, I'm going to continue going, walking there, because my wife is going to come. I don't want that she comes and we are not there. So we came there and members of our families were there. So just for like a handful of people. And uh, at this point, you start hearing bombing. You know, uh, detonations are much closer, much louder, and so on. So we now actually cannot go out. Now you'll be where you are. So we were like, okay, let's open the instruments and let's start playing. Just for the sake of playing. And the first piece we played was... Anna kleine and Nachtmusik by Mozart. All four movements. And as we are going from one movement to another, more people start coming in. Those are people who are walking or running by and they hear the music. This is probably for the first time that they hear the music in that past six weeks. So they come in and we finish the Mozart and we are looking at each other and like, okay, let's just continue. So we continued with the next piece, and people are coming in, coming in. And by the end of the concert, the atrium was filled. That's what we were originally hoping for. And that was the first time when I'm playing and thinking, oh, music is not only here to enhance aesthetic quality of my life. Music is actually also a mean to make other people's lives better, particularly in difficult situations as that one is. So when we finished playing, uh, people came to us, you know, hugged us, and many of them said that this is the best thing that, them, that happened to them since war began.
0: But just three months after the quartet's first wartime concert, the war took one of their own violinists. He was murdered after a rehearsal.
1: His name was Momir Vlachic, and uh, he was walking back home, but the grenade fell in his vicinity, and one part of the grenade went into his stomach. He was transported into the hospital. They started the surgery but electricity stopped. So he was virtually open on a table uh, and they couldn't finish the operation and he died from that. And we cried in disbelief. We conveyed next day, talking about how to honor uh, Momir, you know, to play at his uh, memorial, but also how to continue rehearsing And uh, we decided to ask one of the professors from the music conservatory, Javad Shabanagic, if he would join us. And he said that he will join us. And uh, obviously we are very sad and uh, scared about losing our uh, colleague. And then it's exactly same just a month later. Again, cello player comes, there's a knock on the door, it's uh, early evening. And he's telling us Kamenko has been killed, which is a second violinist. And the way he died is he lived on this uh, hill in Sarajevo with the steep uh, street leading to his house so the Serbian soldiers can see these streets that go like this because they are very visible. And uh, there was a sniper who uh, killed him and... uh, we lost the second violinist. So then the same, you know, uh, we asked for the replacement. One professor from high school, Herbert Tisler replaced uh, Kamenko. We kept rehearsing, and uh, one concert led into another. We played everywhere from broken churches, hospitals, open spaces, schools, frontline, everywhere where people invited us and where people needed some way to 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 enhance their hope in a better future. My mom wanted me to leave because she was in panic that now if you are going first violin, second violin, now the next one is Viola, you know. But by that point I, and I would say probably all people who stayed in these opening months in Sarajevo, it was more than war for survival. It was a war for right thing to do. People, they don't think anymore, oh my gosh, am I going to survive or not? They are fueled by understanding that they are on the right side of the history. And if that means to lose the life, People are willing to lose their lives because they are doing something meaningful, something that is going to make world a better place. That's how we felt at that time in Sarajevo. To be on the right side of the history was very important to me, and I stayed. By February of 1994, we were getting ready to celebrate our 100th concert in the war. So we decided that concert is going to be dedicated to the first civilian victim of Bosnian wars, Mirsada Dilberovic. So we hired a local artist to make her portray, beautiful big portrait in a beautiful frame. And we decided that among other pieces we are going to play a piece by Franz Schubert called Death and Maiden. That is a very uh, famous uh, string quartet. So all ambassadors are going to be invited to the concert and uh, all uh, representatives of United Nations and so on. So we are in this really beautiful, you know, hundreds years old, uh, huge uh, room in this building. Our president, his name was Alia Izedbegovic, is sitting in the very first row with all these other dignitaries. And we play, at one point, there was this lady who walked in and she, waited by the door until we finished one piece, and then she quietly uh, came to our president, and she whispered something. But while we were playing before that, we heard lots of bombing. But at this point, this is like, we are in the second year of the war. We hear bombing all the time. Nobody's anymore even paying attention to these sounds. So she walked out, and we continued playing. And as we are playing, we observe that our president is crying like tears are going down his cheeks. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, what's going on? And after we finished that piece, he came forward and he turned to the audience and he said, he just received the news that the biggest massacre thus far happened on a marketplace, this was February 6, 1994, Uh, over 70 people are killed and uh, his uh, state duties are inviting him to leave the concert and uh, instead of stopping the concert, he wants that concert continues because in his words, this war is not the war between armies, this war is the war between good and bad. And music represents good. And at this point, all four of us are crying. And we just keep playing, you know, at tempos and with all expression that we can bring. To rise up to the words of our president, music represents good. And there are more than 70 people who just died 10 minutes ago. And that hopefully, you know, our music can make some little difference in in that incredible injustice that was happening.
0: Now entering the third year of the war, everyone was exhausted. Electricity was limited, and people resorted to burning books and furniture just to stay warm. The siege continued, and a new type of economy arose where Sarajevo's residents began to trade with each other rather than purchase goods. The same year, Diana was pregnant. Despite the heaviness of the war, she was excited for the arrival of her son. Diana feared, though, that she would lose her position in the quartet if her male colleagues found out that she was pregnant.
1: I was not telling for a long time anybody that I'm pregnant. No, they didn't know even... When we were playing at that 100th concert, which is February, so my son was born in July, I was always like, you know, having this smaller size of body. <laughs> so for a long time, I was able to, to kind of cover, and then I would just wear the bigger clothing, you know. And uh, at one point, I think my colleagues start figuring out, and cello player virtually asked me one day, hey, I'm looking at you from the back, you are kind of bigger, (laughs) you know, what's going on. I was afraid at the beginning that I will be replaced by somebody, you know, because I'm pregnant and, you know, they, you know, yeah, you know, you have to take time off to be with your child. And uh, yeah, and I start playing immediately back, carrying my son, the front lines as like one month old. Part of that was also being uh, concerned that I I may lose my, my position.
0: Diana went into labor early, the night before another large concert in July 1994. Determined not to miss the concert, she asked her doctor if there was any way to slow the labor down. The doctor said no, but she left
1: the hospital anyway. We came home probably... Around 11 p.m. that night, I put my concert clothing on, I laid in the bed, and then after a couple of hours, I start having contractions. So, concert was at 3 p.m., and at 2 p.m., my contractions are like on 45 minutes. So, I virtually walked down slowly, like you are walking on eggs, because the doctor told me, you are risking that your water can break on stage, and we went to the concert, and during the concert time in contractions because at that point it's probably like at 25 minutes and you know i'm just like mm, you know and playing but but waiting that this concert be over i'm sweating and it's it's painful and i'm i'm eager that concert is over but i'm not going to stop the concert so we finished the concert we bowed and i virtually ran out of the of the concert hall, start packing my viola. And the first violins came and said, hey, don't be in a hurry. They want to have interview with us. And I said, I'm not going to have interview. Uh, I'm going straight to the hostel to have my son.
0: Just 45 minutes later, Diana's baby boy was born. She named him Abelard Nizar to honor the religious traditions of each parent. Abelard was taken from the name of a historic Christian philosopher And Nizar is a Persian-Muslim name, meaning somebody who sees beyond. After hosting more than 200 concerts throughout the war, the Sarajevo String Quartet earned so much international attention that they were invited to play in England to raise awareness on what was happening in Bosnia.
1: This is going to be the first time we uh, left Sarajevo after three years. We make it all the way to the airport. And the airport is in dust- disastrous condition. You know, the, ro- the roof is completely broken, water is coming down. But by this point, we are so exhausted physically and emotionally. We just sat down, and I remember sitting on the chair, and water is dripping right next to me. And I'm holding my son in that pouch. I just cannot even move away from that chair. It's just like whatever, whatever. And then uh, finally, after a couple of hours, we are going to board this uh, cargo airplane. They give us these things for our ears, and we sit on the floor and my son is crying and airplane goes up and you look the Sarajevo down. It's April and just 20 minutes after that, we come to Zagreb, which is a capital of Croatia. And uh, we leave the airplane and we are going to wait for these people who organized that tour in England. So it's incredibly quiet. So the first thing you notice after being three years in that constant bombing, how environment can be very quiet. And then they came with the, with the car and they brought us to the, to the hotel. And right next to the hotel was this tiny grocery store with fruits and vegetables, which we did not see for three and a half years. And one of the fruits that I'm noticing are the blueberries, like the blueberries that we have in the United States, like these big blueberries. And I remember staring and thinking, how on this earth is this even possible? Just 20 minutes away from here, people don't have water. Most basic things. And over here, we have all these vegetables and fruits, plus we have these imported blueberries.
0: Later that year, The leaders of Serbia, Croatia, and Bosnia met in Dayton, Ohio, to negotiate a peace treaty. Over 100,000 people had died in the war. 2.2 million people had been displaced, and tens of thousands of women had been raped. The Dayton Agreement asserted that Bosnia and Herzegovina would be its own independent country, but it would be divided along ethnic lines to form two separate entities, the Federation of Bosnia-Herzegovina and the Republika Srpska. The position of the nation's president would rotate every eight months between a Bosniak, a Croat, and a Serb.
1: What that agreement meant in practical terms is that children who were born In mixed marriages, in marriages between parents from different religions, cannot normally live in any one of these three parts for the purpose of their safety, for the purpose of opportunities. And uh, at the beginning, we were not really understanding uh, the effect of this agreement, and we were like very happy that war is finishing and that we can hopefully go back to some sense of normalcy until uh, I start going out to ask for uh, disposable diapers. So the way that humanitarian aid was distributed was through religious-based humanitarian organizations. So the way to get the diapers is you have to bring the birth certificate of child. So I brought the gift certificate to Caritas to Catholic humanitarian aid organization, they take the the birth certificate and they read his first name, which is Abelard Nizar, and his last name is Ayanovic, and they know that that is a Muslim last name, and Nizar is Muslim first name. And they ask me, why did I come here? And I said, because my son needs diapers. And they said, yeah, but this is not the place for his name to get diapers, you need to go to that other organization. So I start explaining them how he's baptized and he has Abelar part of the name, but they were very adamant that I need to go to other organization. So I go to other organization, I stay again in this long line, I show them birth certificate, and they start asking questions about his Abelar part of the name, why he has that part of the name. And that is when it became very obvious to me that life for our son is not going to be simple in a country that is divided in that way. So I came home and I was crying and I was very upset about this and talking to family and friends and my ex-husband and I made decision that we would go somewhere. I was t- absolutely not happy about leaving country after all these years, you know, going through all that struggle. And then when life is supposed to be easier, now you you have to leave it. And I was not looking forward to life of refugee and starting from uh, stage zero with a little child. But it was very obvious that child born in mixed marriage cannot stay there. And the United States at that time, because they recognized that that will happen, opened the special program and the requirement to apply for that program was that had to be mixed marriage and child in that mixed marriage. And that's how we became eligible to move to the United States.
0: So Diana took her son to Zagreb, Croatia, to apply for refugee status. She asked her former professor if they could stay with his father while they waited for their
1: applications to be processed. And his father said, yes, she can come. So I went to the train station, and the train came to that little place called Dugaresa, and I took down my son's stroller and bag that I had, and my son is in this pouch. And chain leaves, and on one side is that old man. On another side, it's me. And we walked towards each other, and we introduced each other. And he took me to his home. That's, that's probably the beginning of refugee part of my story, you know, depending on strangers. Uh, not knowing what future brings.
0: Diana's husband joined them after a few months, and they were eventually approved to come to the United States. They moved to Orange County, California. Later, they divorced, and Diana remarried. Diana decided to return to school, and she received three master's degrees in viola performance, music education, and conducting She then earned her Ph.D. in music education with a concentration in stringed instruments. As Diana was finishing her doctorate, a career opportunity presented itself in Forest Grove,
1: Oregon. When I was about to finish my Ph.D., there was a job opening at Pacific University. But what was really important about that job opening advertisement was they were not just looking for a music professor, they were looking for somebody to start after-school music education program called String Project. And what String Project is, it's after-school music education program that has twofold mission. One part of it is to provide high-quality yet affordable music education for community students. And second part of that mission is to provide undergraduate students with an opportunity to uh, practice their teaching skills in a supervised setting while they are also being paid. That was the major reason why I applied for that job. So I I took the job in 2011 at Pacific University and in 2012, I started that program. And by now, the program grew and we don't only have string project, we have music education project. And under that umbrella, we have band project and choir project, which means the students can come to us and learn Any instrument, it can be flute, oboe, violin, name it, for a very affordable price and get high-quality education for that. That also means that all of my undergraduate students, not only string players, can gain this valuable teaching experience starting in their freshman year.
0: In Diana's estimate, more than 700 students have participated in her stream project since its beginning, and close to three dozen undergraduate students have gained invaluable teaching experience. Most of them are now teaching at public schools. Diana's program has been nationally recognized by the American String Teachers Association, and she is now in line to become the director of the music department at Pacific University.
1: It's important to me because what I learned in the war that music is not just art reserved for those who can afford to go to listen to the Oregon Symphony. That has value in its own. But music is uh, art and mean of living that needs to be accessible to all people. And this is my way of making it accessible to as many students as possible.
2: Many Roads to here is a production of The Immigrant Story. This episode was produced by Mae Jalin, with audio editing and post-production by Greg Palmer. The original interview was conducted by our gregarious executive producer, Senka Raman, in March of 2023. The music used in this podcast episode was recorded live on stage at Alex L. Park's Performing Arts Center at Jesuit High School in Beaverton, Oregon, in September 2021. The Immigrant Story Live recreated the music of the Sarajevo String Quartet, with Diana Ijas playing the viola, accompanied by local string players. Many thanks to St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Beaverton, Oregon, for the use of their space in recording this interview. And many thanks to the Marie Lamfrum Charitable Foundation for supporting this episode with a generous contribution. For more stories, visit theimmigrantstory.org/manyroads. Listen live at prp.fm or stream us wherever you get your podcasts.